This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me coming to you live on tape from Beverly Hills, uh, where I'm going to be back in a couple weeks for our Code Media Conference. If you want to hear me talk to John Stanky, who runs Warner Media, and Kevin Mayer, who's running Digital for Disney, and many other big deal media moguls, that is where you want to join us. You can figure out how to do that by going to recode.net. Also, while I'm promoting cool things, we should tell you that you are listening to the hottest podcast network of 2019. That's just not our opinion. That is Adweek's opinion. So good for us, Fox Media. We're doing great. And by the way, if you want to read the story I, I wrote about Warner Media and their streaming plans, you can go read that at recode.net. But I want to talk about it, too. So I brought in noted streaming aficionado and also my producer, Zach Mack, to talk about Warner Media and HBO Max. Hey, Zach. What's going on, Peter? How you doing? Um, you know what? It's sunny. It's pleasant. I have not many complaints. I have a lot of complaints, but I'm good for now. Um, you want to talk about HBO Max instead of the weather? Yes, let's do it. Uh, so you went to this event. What happened? Tell me what you saw. So this is a repeat sort of of what Disney did a few months ago, where Warner Media, the company we used to call Time Warner, now owned by AT&T, said, we've got a new streaming service. We're going to bring in a bunch of analysts and press. We're going to put them in a big room at desks in this sort of like war room setting. And we're going to bring all our executives on to talk about what we're doing, what we're selling, all the stuff that's going to be in it, and everyone's going to pay attention. And it was kind of almost beat for beat what Disney did a few months ago. So if you've seen the Disney thing, you kind of saw what Warner Media did yesterday. And the main idea is they've got this product that's called HBO Max. And the very big picture is there's a service called HBO, which we all know about, and it's going to stick around. But really what Warner Media wants you to do is Stop being an HBO subscriber and start being an HBO Max subscriber. Um, and the idea is the HBO Max is going to have a lot of other stuff that maybe appeals to people who don't watch HBO. Right. And if you do watch HBO, they're going to say, well, you're going to get other stuff anyway. Why don't you just uh, convert to it? John Stanky, who, who runs Warner Media and has sort of a certain knack for putting things in a brusque way, said, this is going to be an IQ test, meaning... If you're an HBO subscriber, you'll be stupid if you don't become an HBO Max subscriber. So that's the big, big takeaway. Yeah, and HBO Max, the wording is a little bit misleading, right? Because you just think, oh, HBO, but it has all this other stuff. It has CNN and Cartoon Network and the DC Universe. It has all this other stuff that's far beyond just what you know when you think of HBO. This is kind of a grab bag of stuff that Warner Media has. So you won't be watching CNN Live, but you'll be watching shows from CNN. And you won't be able, it's not like watching uh, Adult Swim on, on cable, but there'll be shows from there. And Warner Brothers makes a lot of movies, so there'll be movies from there. Um, again, it's, it's very similar to what Disney has done, except Disney has just start making a standalone service. And the other big difference is, I think most people, if you say Disney, They've got a decent idea what that is. They certainly know what Marvel is. They know what Star Wars is. They probably know what Pixar is. I don't know that that the various Warner brands are as meaningful to as many people. You know, they own the DC uh, Comics universe, and, and that will be meaningful to some people who are really into that. But it's not quite as sort of clear cut. Um, and the way I think of it is, it's, it's just a grab bag of stuff, some of which they already own, some of which they're going to pay a lot of money to to create that they're just going to layer in um, on top of HBO with a thought that HBO reaches a certain audience that likes a certain kind of programming, but we can reach more people if we load it up with a bunch of other stuff. Right. And it, I mean, looking over some of the titles, you know they're going to have Game of Thrones and all the Game of Thrones spinoffs, the DC Universe. And they'll have everything that's on HBO. This is where they right. sort of get confusing, right? Because everything that's on HBO will be on HBO Max because HBO will be part of HBO mm -hmm. Max. You know, and this is sort of one of the things that people who were at Time Warner and running HBO got worried about when this when AT&T bought it a, a couple of years ago was the idea that HBO is going to sort of like lose its branding and luster. The AT&T guys will push back on that idea, but it is all getting sort of blurred together. Right. Yeah, it looks like they're also going to have Rick and Morty, Looney Tunes, yep. Adult Swim stuff, uh, South, South Park. Park, Adventure Time, Boondocks, Sesame Street, a bunch of new movies, and a bunch of originals, I guess. Right, Friends, Big Bang Theory. And again, like you don't think of Warner as Big Bang Theory. If you think about Big Bang Theory, it was a show that was on CBS. It doesn't really matter. It's just a show they hope you will watch. And they're bringing in a bunch of talent. They're bringing in Ridley Scott, who made Alien, and a bunch of other cool movies. J.J. Abrams. 
who apparently works for every streaming service under the sun. He came out yeah. for Apple for their streaming thing. He also does something for Hulu. It's quite funny. And again, I think it will be confusing for a, a regular consumer to sort of understand what they're getting. And this is the part I want to really hammer is that what AT&T wants to do is make it so you don't think about it. Um, what they want to do is convert HBO subscribers into HBO Max subscribers. They're making HBO Max the same price as HBO. So that would encourage you if you've like subscribed through HBO now, just stop subscribing to that and then download HBO Max and it's the same thing. And they want to make it so if you're already getting HBO through your cable uh, system, they'll just move you into HBO Max. That part is going to be tricky. It's not automatic. AT&T has 10 million people who get an AT&T wireless and are also getting HBO. They'll sort of convert automatically because they can do that. But if you're getting it through Comcast or Charter or a traditional sort of cable distributor, that's not automatic, and AT&T is going to have to figure out how to do that negotiation. Right. So if you have HBO Go or HBO Now, the reason this doesn't just roll into HBO Max is because it's tied up with the other cable services? Yeah. If you've got HBO Go, it means you're getting it through a cable service like Comcast. They've got to reopen a negotiation. Comcast isn't just going to do what AT&T wants, so that's going to take a while. It's possible it won't happen. On the other hand, if you just want to just stop subscribing to HBO and subscribe on your own, that's fine. That's pretty easy to do. If you're listening to this podcast, you can certainly figure out how to subscribe to HBO Max, which is going to launch in May. And having HBO Max will not grant you HBO through your cable network. This is completely separate and streaming only, right? For right now, what they want to do is is make it so it, it will work the same way. But again, they'll have to get Comcast to cooperate. So yeah, the, if you're getting HBO through Comcast and you're used to getting it on the Comcast box, you might have to get it through a different box. And it's, it's definitely some work and some friction. And that's why I think it's a pretty smart move on their part to just go, you know, initially the thought was this would be more expensive than regular HBO. And by making it the same price as HBO, they're saying, look, this is literally a no-brainer. Right. Um, so if you want it, you can get it. It, will, it won't cost you any more. By the way, it will probably cost you more down the road. I don't think they're, they're going to leave it at 15 bucks forever. But I suppose you could always go back to HBO. But they were pretty clear. that They're kind of leaving the idea of a standalone HBO service behind. Yeah, and so it's $15, which is already more expensive than Disney, than Netflix, than Apple. That's right. But again, HBO has 30-some million subscribers in the U.S. They really like it. Um, It's where you get Game of Thrones. You can't get it anywhere else. And the idea is you know what HBO is. What if we gave you a bunch of other stuff that maybe you like or maybe you don't? Maybe it's good for your kids. Maybe you're a DC person. It's all fine. We're just going to make it simple for you to do. Everyone else is trying to underprice Netflix. It's Disney at seven bucks and Apple at five bucks. Those prices are going to go up too. But their idea is like, look, we need to convince you this is something worth paying for and we don't want to make that difficult. So our version is to make it really cheap. And again, all of these guys have sort of the same pitch is a lot of this stuff is going to be cheap and a lot of it's going to be free too. If you're a Verizon unlimited phone subscriber, you're going to get Disney Plus free for a year. If you buy a new phone from Apple, you're going to get Apple Plus free for a year. And I think that's partly an admission by a lot of these folks that, you know, this stuff may not be something you automatically want to buy, but, you know, if we give it to you for free, you'll like it. And once you're getting it for free in a year, you're going to probably keep subscribing. How does HBO Max stack up in terms of the sheer volume of content when you're comparing it to like the Netflix library, the Disney library, how much stuff is going to be in there? So they're pitching 10,000 hours, and I don't know how many hours the, the rivals have, except it's clearly more because part of the HBO pitch is, hey, it doesn't matter. They were very explicit about this if we don't have as many shows as the other guys because we know that on Netflix and Amazon, you can debate whether they actually know this, most of the viewing is a handful of shows. Um, the most popular shows get like 50% of the viewing time. By the way, a lot of those shows come from us. Big Bang Theory and Friends. So and this is really sort of aimed at investors. We're going to have plenty of stuff that people want, and it doesn't matter whether we have literally the same number of Netflix as shows that Netflix does. Also, by the way, we think Netflix does a bad job of showing you what they have and they use algorithms, and we're going to use people. They're really leaning on that idea to pick your shows, which is a little overrated. I don't think anyone actually really cares about that. You either go to a service like this and you know what you want to watch, or you're content to sort of scroll through. I don't think it really matters whether they've got a, uh, you know, the equivalent of a video store clerk picking cool shows for you. Right. And so let's talk about the UX a little bit. You got to see a preview of how this product is supposed to look and react. 
so you said no algorithms like how it's it's totally going to have algorithms they're just they're just playing up the idea that at the top they're going to say so and so either a famous person who works for them or someone you don't know pick this show for you but honestly the rest of it looks like a streaming service if you use Netflix or Hulu or you know it's it's kind of the same thing you're going to be recommendations for you here's the shows you're already watching you can watch them again there's a thing there where if you and your kid want to watch a show and you each have your own sort of profile, you can meld them together so that you guys can watch that show, but the algorithm will realize that the two of you are watching it together. And then so when it goes back to you viewing it, it's not going to show you kids stuff and it's not going to show your kids inappropriate stuff. I don't know. That kind of seems interesting. I don't think it really matters. Again, I think people want to watch this stuff because they want to pay for this stuff or use it because it's easy delivers a show on demand and you know you got to come out and say something about your ui it's it's part of the the uh, requirement for these demonstrations i do yeah. not think a single regular user cares about it what's going on with the branding why call it hbo max if it's all this other stuff you said earlier you don't think of big bang theory when you think of hbo why are we supposed to do that now I think it's called HBO Max because HBO plus a bunch of other shit that we randomly own is not a very good uh, tagline. And then everyone else calls their product plus, right? So they could have called it HBO plus. But again, it's, you know what HBO is. We've been in the market for decades. You know what that is. It's HBO and other stuff. And I think Max is just a more efficient way of saying that. By the way, I'm going to talk to John Stanky about all of this uh, on stage in a couple of weeks. I'm re-promoting my show. You should come watch it. You're going to be there. I will. What else can I tell you? Um, if you're a DC fan and there are DC fans, you're going to get excited. There's going to be a, a Green Lantern show. Um, I can't tell you if anything's are going to be good. Even the stuff they showed previews of, you've got no way of knowing. Again, unlike the Apple uh, rollout in, in March, they actually showed some clips from some shows. So these things exist. But no way of knowing if, if they're going to be good. Yeah, and the big thing for DC fans on Twitter, of course, was trying to figure out whether or not HBO will release the Snyder Cut of Justice League. That's a very deep cut. Uh, You can go Google (laughs) it. It's a very Zach thing to bring up. Um, There was no mention of it on stage last night. Good. I don't think it's worth, worth discussing further than that. All right, let's talk about the margins a little bit. You said Warner Media is going to sink like $4 billion into HBO Max, but it should turn a profit by 2025 when it expects to have 50 million subscribers and will be able to generate a billion dollars in profit. That's what they're projecting. That's their pitch. Again, that's sort of similar to what Disney is saying. Look, we're going to lose a bunch of money up front because we got to pay for these shows. Um, it's also, by the way, we're going to lose money because we used to sell these shows to Netflix or Hulu, and we're going to stop doing that. So it's going to cost us a bunch of money, plus we got to spend a ton of money promoting this stuff. So we're going to lose a lot, and then eventually we're going to have this profitable business that will look sort of like Netflix. That's the pitch. That's what Wall Street is supposed to get. When you're talking about the HBO strategy, forever it's been our shows are better. We make better shows than anyone else. Is that still pretty much the strategy? The idea is HBO is still going to be HBO. By the way, HBO is doing great right now. I love Watchmen. Um, a lot of their shows look really cool and buzzy. Yeah. Um, and they, they're trying to walk this fine line where they're going to say HBO remains this really interesting thing. We're going to make more interesting things. It's going to continue to be high quality. But also, there's a bunch of other stuff that's going to reach other people. Um, so they're not saying, look, we're going, to t- you know, we're going to make HBO less good, but that's obviously a worry for a lot of folks, that if there's pressure to make more stuff, if there's pressure to reach a bigger audience, that eventually you, know, you won't be able to do interesting shows like, say, Chernobyl, which was kind of a hit, but I think compared to like a Big Bang Theory, right, it's a different audience. Yeah, beyond the, the HBO Max stuff, there was a bunch of other things that happened in kind of the larger streaming world this week. Uh, it looks like Benioff and Weiss, the Game of Thrones showrunners, they are out on any Game of Thrones prequels, and now they are out on the Star Wars trilogy they were supposed to make. And they still have that huge deal with Netflix. That was kind of a big one. Yeah, it's a power move by Netflix in some ways, right? Like, you got yeah, the, the biggest people in TV are going to be on Netflix. And it looks like J.J. Abrams is seemingly tied up with every streaming service. He's on stage at Apple. The polite term He's is promiscuous. Yeah. Disney Plus put out the trailer for Mandalorian, their new Star Wars spinoff, and they've just been pushing hard. I've been seeing Disney Plus advertisements everywhere. I was in the airport this week. It's it's just, it's everywhere. 
Yeah, there's a good New York Times story this week basically describing a shock and awe campaign. And, you know, Disney specializes in cross-promoting their stuff. If you watch Monday Night Football, they're going to hammer it hard. If you watch The View, they're going to hammer it hard, on and on and on. Um, you won't be able to not watch it. Again, just to set the scene here, we're recording this on Wednesday. You're going to hear it on Thursday. Friday, Apple TV launches. Uh, and then on November 12th, a couple weeks from now, less than a couple weeks from now, uh, Disney Plus launches. So that's one of the reasons, by the way, Warner Media is doing this now. They're saying, look, even though we're not launching, we just want to make sure we grab some of the streaming wars spotlight. Yeah, this is probably a good time to plug that you and I are working on a larger narrative series about the streaming wars and specifically Netflix. So stay tuned for that. If you like hearing me talk about streaming for many hours on end, we have a special treat for you guys next spring. So final thoughts, what what are you most looking forward to regarding uh, HBO Max? You know, I'll get it because I'm already getting HBO now. So I'll do uh, uh, the fine folks at AT&T a favor and I'll unsubscribe from that and I'll download HBO Max. I don't know that any of the programming is going to appeal to me right now. By the way, they're going to layer more stuff on in the coming years. Eventually, there's going to be an advertising-supported system uh, version of this that'll be cheaper. It'll have ads. Um, eventually, they're going to do other specials like live and interactive stuff. I don't really care. My kids are Marvel kids, but I'm sure they'll want to watch some of the DC movies eventually. It's fine. It's not really for me. I'm, I'm an HBO guy, but that's fine. It's a big world, um, and I do appreciate that all of the billions of dollars that all these guys are spending are, are going to shower me with content for a while, and some of it's going to be really good. And if I don't like the stuff, that's fine too, because I'm either not going to pay anything for it or it's going to be pretty cheap. So if you like consuming a lot of video, some of it which is going to be pretty good, the next couple of years are going to be pretty good for you. You can have to do a little work. Um, it used to be that you could just go to Netflix and maybe Hulu and pretty much everything you wanted to see was there. That's all being disaggregated. It's all being scattered to various giant corporations like AT&T, like Comcast, like Disney. But again, you, you can figure out how to move around on a, on a browser or, or pick a different app. So you'll be able to find all the stuff you want. And a lot of it's going to be pretty good. Are you still betting on Netflix at this point? I think I've said this line before, but I'm not that bold of a thinker. And I usually bet on the people who are way, way ahead in a race. Uh, Netflix is at 160 million subscribers worldwide. Everyone else is basically at zero. I mean, HBO is at, at 30 million or for 50 million, depending on how you count it. But they've got to launch a new thing. So I bet on the people who are who are way, way, way ahead in the race. And I think those are the people who are going to continue to be ahead. All right. That's all I got. Zach, great talking to you from Beverly Hills. You're in Chicago. I'll see you back in New York. In a minute, we're going to hear from Steve Swartz. He's the CEO of Hearst which is also in media in many different ways. You'll hear about that shortly. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me speaking to you live on tape from Vox headquarters in New York City. Here with Hearst CEO, Steve Swartz. Welcome, Steve. Thank you very much. I'm speaking to you a day after my employer, Vox Media, just announced it was buying New York Magazine. This is the media consolidation we keep hearing about, but it doesn't happen that often. I'm curious what you think about that what you think about buying a magazine publisher in 2019. It's, some, it's a business you're in. Well, look, what we learn uh, from our business is that brands matter a lot these days. And uh, uh, obviously, I'm not privy to uh, the complete strategy of the Vox move, but uh, New York Magazine is just a fabulous brand, and it has some great uh, digital brands as well. So, um, and, you know, consolidation uh, done smartly obviously does take some cost out of the system, uh, alleviates a little of the pressure uh, on the revenue side of the business. So, it seems like an interesting move to me. I think it also is an interesting move. Hopefully that will still be the case by the time you hear this interview in a week or two. And the reason I think it's interesting to ask you about consolidation and buying media properties is Hearst has been buying a lot of stuff over the last few years, but mostly you've not been buying consumer media. You've been diversifying away from consumer media. This is a strategy you guys have been on for quite some time, and I want to talk to you about that, what you're doing and, and why you're doing it. Can you lay that out for us? Well, what I would say, we have been buying in consumer media. We've bought 
uh, the Rodale uh, magazine. A couple years ago, right? And uh, yes, and we bought some newspapers in markets that are adjacent to ours, and we've bought a, a few uh, television stations. So we have selectively invested in consumer media, and we're still a big believer in consumer media. But the majority of the acquisitions we've done over the last several years have been in what we uh, refer to as business media uh, to distinguish it from consumer media. And that would be B2B data and software companies, uh, the largest uh, and now the largest company that Hearst wholly owns in terms of profits uh, is the Fitch Group, which uh, uh, principal business is the Fitch bond rating business, mm-hmm. a global business. We have Hearst Health, which is a collection of five uh, fabulous data and software companies that we think are playing a great role in making healthcare uh, of higher quality and, and more cost-effective. Um, we have a fabulous uh, aviation uh, data and software business called Camp, and uh, we have some automotive uh, data businesses. So that collection of businesses we have built up uh, significantly over the last uh, several years uh, since 2012. Uh, we've made uh, more than $9 billion of acquisitions in that area, and that's gone from a, a small but highly successful part of the company's overall profitability to this year it'll be about 40% of total profits will come from these B2B uh, uh, businesses, and still 60% will come from consumer media. And uh, while, you know, we got our start as a newspaper company and then became a phenomenal magazine company, the majority of our consumer uh, media profits today are in the television business. Right. You guys own a, a chunk of ESPN. You own a chunk of uh, A&E. And I, what I think of you doing over the last few years is taking the money from those businesses in particular, which throw off a ton of cash, and saying, thank you very much. And instead of handings out to shareholders, you guys are privately owned. Um, we are going to invest that in B2B businesses that unless you are in the aviation business or the auto business or you're in the bond business, you're never going to see. Um, and, and frankly, if you're writing about media like me, you would consider these boring businesses. But what makes them attractive to you? Why leverage TV money into sort of B2B money in B2B well, businesses? Well, first of all, I, I want to be clear with regard to ESPN, where Disney is the majority uh-huh. uh, shareholder at 80%. Uh, we are certainly investing in the business. And, uh, you know, sports rights acquisition are not for the faint of heart. And certainly ESPN Plus and uh, all the fabulous things the, that our Disney partners Partners are leading there at ESPN. So there is a, a, a strong amount of reinvestment. Uh, we are uh, reinvesting at, at A&E and putting some great shows. We have a huge hit show on but called these PD. But these so are very I, profitable businesses, yeah, right? Even are. though they're under pressure and there's some decline, they, they throw off a lot of money. They do generate a tremendous amount of free cash, which is great for the company. I just want to be clear that we are reinvesting in all the capital they need, all the software, all the human talent. But your point is well taken that the majority of the cash that we are generating, and we do pay a competitive dividend, but the majority of the cash that we're being generated has been reinvested in the area that right now uh, offers uh, better prospects for significant growth. We're we're getting in the double-digit range in growth in profits uh, in our uh, business media businesses, and uh, we see that continuing, and we want to build on these great friends franchises that we have in financial services, in aviation, transportation, uh, and in healthcare. And and what makes those businesses attractive? What are the components that make it attractive? Well, some of the things that I think make any business uh, attractive, first of all, uniqueness. They tend to uh, be either unique data sets or a unique a niche software that does a unique uh, uh, function within an industry, whether that would be uh, healthcare or aviation. They have a great business model, which tends to be subscription, uh, just like in the technology area, the the great SaaS businesses. Mm-hmm. They, they tend to be subscription businesses. Uh, with uh, the customers with, are are businesses. Themselves. The customers are businesses with strong business models of their own, and the renewal rates are extraordinarily high. So. 
folks who are listening to this are generally interested in media. They're generally interested in consumer media. They're trying to figure out sort of how to run a business, how to assess other people's businesses. Maybe they're just interested in, in media generally. What should the takeaway be if you guys are taking money that you're making from consumer media and plowing it into non-consumer media businesses? To me, if you're in a consumer media business and you see what you guys are doing and it seems to be successful, that should be worrisome. Well, look, we remain uh, very committed to the consumer media businesses. It is approximately 60% of our profits. We've been in the consumer media business for 132 years, and we plan to be in it for as far as the eye can see. Uh, We just try to be pragmatic and uh, to uh, invest where uh, the most growth is possible in the time we're in. Now, again, having had a corporate history of 132 years and having a lot of lessons passed down. Uh, Certain businesses uh, do better in some times and and then not. There were times you go back, I don't know, maybe 20 years, people were saying, oh, broadcast television, it's over. Mm -hmm. Cable, there's so many avails now. The ads are falling. And then the broadcast industry started to get uh, paid by the distributors in the way the so-called cable channels were. And broadcasting came back. And we've enjoyed record profits in broadcasting after a lot of doomsayers would have said, that's it. And certainly uh, there have been ups and downs in the newspaper business and the magazine business, and there's a secular transformation going on, and it, it is tough. It is tough to get a lot of growth uh, right now. Uh, but we believe in strong brands. We believe in, in our consumer media businesses. And, and I think our folks understand that by investing in strong growth businesses, we've just made the company stronger. And thus, I would agree there's nothing better for consumer media, for publishers, say, uh, for television creators than to have strong parents. Because if you're strong and a business that you believe in, the brand, you believe in the mission, and we believe we're a very mission-driven company, if you believe in the mission of journalism, if you believe in the mission of what our uh, reporters at our television stations and our newspapers and what our magazine journalists are doing, if you believe in that, when you're in some headwinds, uh, you can afford to be patient. Whereas if the business is under great financial strain, uh, even if you're well-meaning, sometimes you just don't have the patience. Yeah, and I'd feel good if I was working at Esquire or Cosmo or one of your local papers that that you guys had that TV money and that you'd put it into something that was also strong would make me feel like I've got a little bit of cushion. But you're still doing cuts at some of these properties, right? I mean, you're still contracting some of them as those those industries contract. Well, you know, uh, we do believe that while uh, businesses can benefit from the strength of the parent, uh, to some level you have to strike a balance. Businesses have to stand on their own. And in a world where uh, business models are being changed, regrettably and painfully, sometimes we do have to seek a new level of expense for a business whose revenue is getting upended. I mean, uh, this is a absolute golden age for consumers of media, and particularly right now consumers of television uh, in so many ways. But clearly, whenever uh, an existing business model that has been successful for a group of incumbents gets changed, it puts a decent amount right. of pressure on it, and then you have to react to that change and reset and learn how to do things differently. And just because you have the money to sort of prop that up doesn't mean you want to run them as, as, as money-losing Yes, I, I, I think in terms of governments, in terms of countries, in terms of businesses, in terms of even not-for-profit organizations, if you let things stay inefficient and bleeding, uh, that will eventually drag down the hole. Vox Media is a for-profit business. One of the ways we, we generate revenue and hopefully profits is, is through advertising. So we're going to hear from an advertiser right now. Be right back. I'm back here with Steve Swartz. He's been drinking a lot of coffee. He gets up early. Not Bob Iger early, I don't think. He's up at like four in the morning. You know, right every time out. I either see Bob or read about Bob, and I'm reading now his new book, which is just fabulous. What a great American success story. You know, I feel like I should be getting up at 4 a.m. and exercising, but I just have You're never, never been able to do it. I want to talk to you more about business strategy and, and, and where you think things are going. But I do want to ask you about uh, how you got here. Um, you started off doing what I'm still doing, uh, journalism. You were at the Journal for a long time. That's the Wall Street Journal. Um, how did you get into newspapering? I loved 
politics as a kid. I remember staying in in the summer to watch the Senate Watergate hearings. I was fascinated by it. I wrote letters to a bunch of the That's, senators. That seems and, like a timely uh, reference. And uh, yeah, it goes goes back a ways. And, and then, of course, was just captivated by the work that the Washington Post had done uh, to— uh, to uh, play a significant role there and then got just more involved in seeing all the great work also that the New York Times was doing. And and uh, it just seemed to me I was looking for uh, a career uh, where you were really, uh, you know, again, it's a word that we didn't use back then, but now, you know, a mission-driven where you were really helping society every day, not just, you know, doing business and then giving to uh, charity on the weekends or whatever. So I, I wanted something that and I just came to see that that journalism, as I still see, is is such a great profession. And then when I went to college, I worked on the school newspaper, I worked on the school uh, radio station, and was able to get an internship at the Wall Street Journal. And then they hired me back. It's hard to remember uh, or even sort of think about it, but there was a time when when journalism wasn't just considered like an interesting thing or, or maybe worthwhile, but sort of a swashbuckling, cool profession. And that was because of Watergate. Pentagon Papers and Woodward and Bernstein and Dustin Hoffman and Robert Bradley Redford help. And all, all, all of the above. Yeah. Um, and so you get to the journal, you do well there. You're, I think, the page one editor at one point? I, I was one of the page one editors working for the fabulous Jim Stewart. And, of course, our ultimate bosses were the uh, the great Norm Perlstein and uh, Paul Steiger. And, and again, uh, for context, page one editor means you're, you're editing the stories that run on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. Um, Print. This is when there was no digital, so this is the only way people are going to see something. So that's just to explain that you were you were high up the masthead. You've done very well there. Yeah. Well, you know, in the back in the in, in the day that I was there, the journal had the front page was a little different than the way it is today. And I think uh, Rupert Murdoch and Robert Thompson made the right decision in changing it to make it newsier. Mm-hmm. But the journal front page used to be a collection of three magazine style feature mm-hmm. stories. Uh, an attempted humor in the middle and and two weighty pieces on the right and left. And so those needed a lot of editing work, both in advance and and often a decent amount of rewriting and reworking to get them just right. And so that's what the page one staff did. Yeah, I mean, I, I would often, again, I started reading the journal like in the early 90s and was blown away to read it just after you put it, because, you, you know, it's your dad's newspaper and it's the business newspaper. And then when you start reading it, at least in the old days, you're like, oh, this is a magazine that they're printing on newsprint and putting out once d- daily, but it's, there's an amazing, long, what we now call long form. Yes, the journal did a lot of long form. Now, that we would always question, and I remember at the time our, our CEO, Peter Kahn, who was a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, and so would always ask, are people really reading these articles? Because they were a little long. Journalists uh, love them. Uh, uh, journalists love them. Uh, but I think uh, uh, the journal is still such a fabulous paper. I think Rupert and Robert and their colleagues realized that in today's world they had to be newsier, those three long-form pieces uh, all at once on the front page were were a little much, and I, I think uh, it was a good move to change. I still miss them. Um, and so, you, but the point is, you're doing well on the edit side, and then at some point you say, yeah, I'm going to be on the business side of, of, of publications. How does that happen? Well, once I got to uh, page one after having been a reporter for, I don't know, I guess about five years, my bosses there, Peter Kahn and Norm Perlstein, asked me about my career path, and I I did say that uh, I would like to end up on the business side. And uh, um, so you thought that early on? Yes, yeah, I, I did. As much as uh, I loved Woodward and Bernstein, and obviously got my start as a reporter, I got a chance to meet Ben Bradley at one point, and that was a that was a great moment in my career. I, I did notice that Catherine Graham was the boss, and mm-hmm. I said, "Well, if you're gonna if you're gonna have an ambition in life, why not uh, why not have that?" So, um, given that, when Hearst and the Wall Street Journal started talking about launching a magazine, uh, and it fell to Norm Perlstein to get that done. Uh, Norm called me in one day and and uh, said, maybe this is something that you should do if you want to cross over onto the business side. Helping us start a new magazine would be a good uh, move. So I took the opportunity. And that was smart money, which I believe no longer exists in any form, right? I think they shut it down at 
you know, I, I, stages I, I believe that's right. At some point, uh, Smart Money was sold to Dow Jones, and and then I believe they eventually shut it down. And at some point, you end up at Hearst, which again is family-owned publication, famously newspapers in, in the very old days. When you get there, are they already on that diversification strategy? Oh, yes. I think uh, the, the initial diversification strategy goes to William Randolph Hearst when you think about it. He started in the newspaper business by taking over a newspaper that his father, uh, Senator George Hearst, one of the great miners of the Western migration, uh, owned. As Cam- part of- has cameos in Deadwood, by the he, way. He, he was big in Deadwood, and it's I think he's the in villain yes. in, in the Deadwood movie. Uh, uh, he's the villain in the Deadwood show, too. Obviously, uh, at Hearst, we take a much more benign view of the Senate role in society. But look, he was one of the most successful miners and one of the great businessmen and, and land investors and, and as part of the uh, vast holdings that Senator Hearst had uh, amassed, he had a newspaper. William Randolph Hearst took that over, uh, made it a lot better, and then immediately comes to New York uh, from San Francisco where, where the, the paper was, uh, the first paper, and takes on Pulitzer here and then starts opening and buying newspapers all over the country, then goes into the magazine business, uh, then tries animated cartoons, he tries movies, he he tries radio. Uh, we had a business that put newsreels in movie theaters. He created one of the first newspaper syndicates for comics. Uh, and then before he died, he lived to be 88 years old, he bought one of the first television stations, 1948, Baltimore, Maryland. So we got this uh, this uh, this notion of diversifying first from William Randolph Hearst, but we were also blessed with a second larger than life CEO, and we're still blessed as he is still our executive vice chairman, Frank Benick. And uh, Frank Benick took over the company in 1979. It was mostly a newspaper magazine company with a little bit of television, and Frank really kind of channeled Mr. Hearst's vision, and uh, you know got us into cable. Uh, built up our television uh, station business, forged the partnership with ABC that eventually became the partnership with Cap Cities and then with uh, Disney, got us uh, uh, into business media. Uh, So Frank, who ran the company for about uh, 28 years, was also a transformative figure, also pushed this diversification. And and Frank, like Bob Iger, has just written his memoirs and highly recommend both of them. But the $9 billion you spent over the last few years. That's under your watch, right? Well, you know, I, I, th- I think we, we still run as a partnership, all of the division heads, Frank, our board, uh, Will Hurst, our chairman. I, I think we, we all just mm-hmm. bought in to the notion that that's where the company needed right. to go more aggressively. Right, so that acceleration, acceleration. in the business media, that's, yes. a, that's under your watch. Um, and I also remember there was a period during the, the, the now past tense digital media boom slash boomlet where people like Vice and BuzzFeed and Vox Media, my employer, were all raising money, that you guys were throwing what seemed like a lot of money, and comparatively it's not very much, um, into lots of digital media operations. Yeah, I mean, these were, these were relatively small investments for us, and some of them were literally small investments. BuzzFeed, but, Vice, uh, yes, Refinery. I mean, but they were different parts of Hearst doing things somewhat independently. So the initial investment was our fabulous venture group, and we've had a venture uh, investing for more than 20 years, and we've now expanded to do both core venture, which is kind of media and technology and data. We now do a lot of B2B. We do healthcare. We do financial services venture. We have venture offices now in Tel Aviv and London and uh, Beijing. So venture has become a big part of the company, and our one of our great venture investors, Scott English, made uh, one of the first investments in BuzzFeed, but that was venture. I don't believe they made another mm-hmm. similar investment in other kind of startup media companies at that time. We, uh, Ken Bronfen, another one of our great venture investors, did Roku, but that was more of a platform. So that was a one-off there. Then our A&E business, our television business, A&E History and Lifetime, uh, the A&E Networks, uh, which we own 50-50 with the Walt Disney Company, uh, were very intrigued with Vice and the ability to turn one of our kind of a second-tier cable channels into a vice channel. It was which the H2 channel, happened. which became Viceland. H2 Land. became Viceland. And so we, as part of that deal, uh, through A&E, made, a, made an investment. And then 
our entertainment group, which holds our uh, interest in ESPN and A&E and owns King Features and some other things, was looking at this whole notion of, um, you know, if streaming is going to take hold, what does that mean for our existing cable channels, which, you know, particularly, uh, you know, a history channel caters not to the young mm-hmm. uh, phone-carrying streamers necessarily, although some of its shows do. So we had a little bit of a concern of, A, what if the cable bundle uh, breaks down? What if the distributors who are so important to that ecosystem start to favor new brands aimed at very young people on their phones? So what we said is, let's hedge that by making a couple of investments into some cool uh, businesses that that are video-centric, phone-centric, and aimed at teens or young adults. So we made two investments. Uh, One was in a company uh, run by a fabulous movie maker, Brian Robbins, and uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg at the time and his company were the principal investor. And we made an investment there. That was awesomeness. Eventually, Verizon came in. But then, you know, when Jeffrey sold uh, DreamWorks to Comcast, um, you know, the the, the shareholders, now now we had Comcast as shareholder. They're great company, great partners. But, you know, the, the partners had different visions and ended up selling that business to Viacom, where Brian Robbins uh, works today. Um, The other one is Complex, uh, run by Rich Antonella, fabulous entrepreneur. You will have heard on this podcast by the time this one airs. Well, he is is great, and he's done a great job for us. And Complex aims, while awesomeness uh, aims at the kind of teens to maybe young 20s uh, uh, young women, Complex aims at a similar age of young men and uh, has done really well, uh, is profitable. Uh, Verizon joined us, and we co-owned that business. But what has happened in that whole space, the space that includes BuzzFeed and Vox and whatever, is that A, uh, you know, historically new brands are created every time there's a new platform. But one could argue that in this time, the most powerful brands that have been created are the platforms themselves. The so, Facebooks so and the, the Facebooks and, uh, and the really, Instagrams and, Google, and, yeah. and, and YouTubes, and that they are brands in the, in and of themselves. And that was something you guys didn't get at the time you were making those we, bets. We didn't fully see that. I would also say that uh, the good news is, while we may have missed that, the good news is is that the cable bundle has held up much more strongly than we thought, and our traditional brands have held up. So there has not been a swing in terms of the cable and streaming distributors wanting to switch out uh, brands that aims at people, uh, you know, I'm in my mid-50s, uh, uh, people that aim at me, uh, and go to uh, brands that are aiming at people in their 20s. Right, it's, still, uh, it's the sales pitch for a cheddar and people like that. We're going to be on the cable dial, and sometimes they do get distribution, but the bulk of that is still at the existing The, the, the traditional brands have held strong. And, and they're the ones who are getting paid by the distributors. Yes, and given how much uh, money we make from an A&E, a history, a lifetime, or an ESPN versus the small uh, bets that we made in the newer streaming brands as a company, uh, you know, it, it, it works out better for us that the existing ecosystem has held up so well. Right, so you can still make a lot of money from an existing industry, even if it's under pressure, even if there's decline, you can still throw off a ton of money. It's an important lesson to remember. That said... You know there's a digital transformation happening. You know consumer behavior is changing. The initial bets you made probably didn't pan out the way you thought they would. But like we've been talking about, you still have this, uh, you're still generating lots of cash. You're diversifying. Why not go ahead and make other digital bets? Well, we may. Uh, you know, we, we continue to look at things, I would say, right now, just in acquisitions in general. Anything that's growing fast, and particularly anything that's growing fast and, and is profitable, the multiples have gotten to levels that it makes it very hard to buy. Uh, you know, we bought our last really big investment, and I would say really big would be north of a billion dollars. The last company that we bought that was in a new field that was standalone uh, for more than that was in 2016. Uh, Now, since then, we we bought, uh, that was a company called Camp, which is an aviation software uh, company. And then since then, we had, we acquired more of Fitch in some hefty transactions, uh, and now we own 100% of Fitch. But 
uh, in general, for new businesses that are growing fast, the multiples have gotten to levels that it's very hard to to make those kind of acquisitions right now. And just to keep hammering on this, it just seems like you guys are saying, look, we get that consumer media is changing. We have an older consumer media business. It still works. But when we can make bets, we're not going to do it in consumer media. We we just feel more comfortable buying into business media. And, well, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far. I mean, I think one of the things, uh, many things I've learned from Frank Benick is to approach the world with an underlying view of pragmatism. So we don't necessarily say we won't do. Uh, mm-hmm. We just say right now there are more opportunities uh, on the business media side and more opportunities to, say, bolt on businesses to our existing infrastructure. So we were very fortunate uh, to be able to announce last week that our camp business, that aviation data and software company we just announced, has agreed to buy uh, a business from the Boeing company, uh, uh, also in the aviation field. So those are the things right now that we're focused more on, but we are still open to buying more uh, television stations, newspapers, and magazine and digital brands to complement our consumer media businesses, but we will invest more in business media because of the prevailing conditions of today. There's more opportunity there. You you said, you know, our conclusion is the big winners of the digital media revolution the last few years are Google, Facebook, the various properties Facebook owns, the platforms. They're also under political pressure for a bunch of different reasons. Do you think that that pressure, whether it comes in the, you know, whether it generates regulation or, or who knows what, is going to create opportunities in consumer media where maybe, you know, you see the Googles and the Facebooks either throwing money at you guys to make you shut up um, or maybe they're forced to spin stuff out. Um, does that create opportunity for you? Hard to say. I, I would say, though, I, I think my colleagues at Hearst feel uh, that they are making progress in terms of finding uh, ways to work with uh, Facebook and, and Google and their respective uh, other brands uh, more successfully. Obviously, one of the things that happened in this world is uh, those distributors found ways to either use a user-generated content or, in the case of Google, other people's content mm-hmm. that they access by search. So that made them less dependent on uh, uh, media creators. It's a good model uh, when you have to pay uh, for that stuff. Uh, I, it has proven to be an outstanding model. But look, we have to keep innovating. We have to keep showing them that there are win-wins out there and that we can make more of a difference for them and that they can make more of a difference for us. And it all comes down to what I think our, our magazine division, in particular under Troy Young, is doing, which is just constantly innovating. And I do believe, you know, there's been some debate as to in this new streaming and digital world, do brands matter? And there's a school of thought that says they don't. Uh, We're totally in the opposite camp. And, you know, we have a very successful digital business in magazines. And we think it's in part because of the digital creativity of the team that Troy and Kate Lewis and everybody's put together. But we also think it's because of the fabulous brands and because they still have the fabulous physical manifestation of print. And if you want to see another big bet on brands, clearly Disney Plus is Mm -hmm. a big bet by Bob Iger, who has been such a fabulous CEO on the power brands. Uh, you guys started as a newspaper business, like we discussed, and you're still, you still own a bunch of local newspapers. The local newspaper story is, is generally very, very grim. Uh, Dean Bacay, who runs The Times, thinks 50% of the papers are going to close in the next five years. You guys are still in it. Is there something there that gives you hope that, that either of these businesses will either turn around or will be more sustainable than people think? Yes, we certainly believe in local newspapers. Our newspapers are are solidly profitable, and uh, we believe in the mission, and we also believe in the commitment we've made to these communities to serve them. I think that it is clearly a tough environment. The pressure on print hits them hard. Uh, I think that it is not as easy because they don't have the scale benefits to innovate digitally as it is for uh, a, a newspaper uh, such as the great New York Times brand or Washington Post or FT or Wall Street Journal, whose audience is a global audience. And a it, rich audience, it, too. It's an, and a wealthy audience and an audience hungry for the kind of high-value information they create. When you're, when you're serving, as we are proud to San Francisco 
Frisco or Houston or San Antonio or Albany or, or the Connecticut markets. You have to invest more wisely because your audience is not global and it's not even national. Uh, so there are pressures there. But there are also great advantages because while our national brands are competing constantly with Facebook and Google and calling on the same people as they are, uh, our advantage in the local markets as we're there, the global platforms are not there. Thus, we believe a great advantage is having a, a big, um, well-trained local sales force, understanding the problems of local businesses and how we can help. Uh, we think you need a free product to serve the wider market because there's still, well, obviously one of the big problems in this country is lack of disposable income. So you've got to have an ad-supported business that reaches the whole market. And then uh, some of the traditional journalism, investigative, explanatory, inside of government, and whatever, uh, that be a premium product, offering more data and what have you. Uh, you got to do events. Uh, we have digital ad agencies and digital marketing services businesses in all of our markets. And I think the combination and that focus on localness, I think we will be fine, but uh, no need to sugarcoat it. It's, it's a much tougher business than it was many years ago. So I, I get the argument that the Times and the Journal have to compete with the Facebooks and Googles and, and whoever for, for these, for, and, and themselves right, for these ads. But locally, you still do, too, right, the classifieds business, which really sustained newspapers forever, has is, is really been blown apart by Craigslist and Free. Oh, no question. And, and but I'm Facebook just saying, is coming for it now. I'm just saying that we have a competitive advantage that we need to use to get our fair share, or perhaps a little more than yeah. our fair share, of the local dollars by being in front of the local advertisers with with well-trained you have who are human beings who know those who are listening and talking and offering solutions to the challenges that local advertisers are facing. I think it's a competitive advantage, and we have to execute on that as as best we can. It was funny when Groupon was briefly a big deal. That that was their big their big innovation was that cracked the digital local code, and what they just they hired a lot of people to sell ads. Well, you know, I I think it's different to say your local, but when your brand has been serving the local communities for over a hundred years, as as many of ours has, I, I think there's a there's a lot more credibility there. Is there a minimum population size for a city for you guys to run a, a, a paper? Is there a point where you go, look, if it's a town of less than, I don't know, 100,000, whatever it is, we can't make this thing work? I, I don't know that we look at it that way. We have some really small papers with uh, circulation in uh, under 10,000 uh, that are doing fine. And obviously, we have uh, larger papers in, uh, in our two biggest would be uh, Houston and San Francisco. Uh, they all have their different challenges. You know, if a market is too small and it loses a couple of big advertisers, say they go out of business from pressure from mm -hmm. the digital national players, uh, that can impair the community's ability to generate enough revenue to make it work. Depending also on the demographics, uh, a small a newspaper, the smaller the focus, the more relevant the uh, uh, news is to the uh, reader. And thus, if it is a uh, market where there is enough disposable income, it can be uh, uh, supported largely by subscription. In a big market, uh, you have one of the problems, and it's a, kind of an overwhelming problem in, in New York to try to serve the local market, is what is local right. in New York? So the bigger you get, you have to be able to chop things up into communities, and you have to tell master narratives that unite the community. Uh, so they all have their challenges, but, you know, we have a number of solidly profitable papers, and again, we are still open to looking at particularly buying papers in adjacent markets where you can use the same printing facility and the like. Well, that is the most positive local newspaper story I've heard, at least at this desk, for three years. So thank you for that. I will take that as a... Well, look, we love the newspaper business. We're committed to it. It was our original business. Uh, my predecessor, uh, Frank Benick, ran the newspaper group. Uh, our chief operating officer, Mark Aldham, also ran our newspaper group, now run uh, very well by Jeff Johnson. So we believe in it. I, I'm also uh, uh, honored to serve as the chairman of the Associated Press, which is just a fabulous not-for-profit organization, the largest journalism organization in the world, which also serves local newspapers and local broadcasters. So we have a, a deep commitment to the business. Steve, thank you for making time. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me down. Thank you to Zach and Jelani and Joel for putting this all together. Thanks to our advertisers who bring this free content to you. Thanks to you guys for listening. We're putting out a lot of content this month, so keep listening. This is Recode Media. We'll see you very soon.